I'm home. This is the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look into video gaming from the classic era until today. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number 12 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Uh, I did a quick check through my emails and voicemails and nothing had come has uh, come up so um, we're just gonna go right on ahead with the show but first as always um, if you do want to get in touch with the show and you have stories ideas um, critiques anything uh, that can affect the show in a positive manner uh, you can get a hold of me at arcade addict Brian that's all one word at gmail.com also, there is a phone number you can call to leave a voicemail to the show, and that number is 734-743-2433. Also, I do have a, a social media presence. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Just search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict Podcast. On Twitter, it is ArcadeAddict underscore B. On Instagram, it is ArcadeAddictBrian, all one word. And Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash confessions of an arcade addict. So there are different ways to get a hold of the show if you are so inclined. So have at it. As long as you're nice, you know, we can see if we can make this work. So let's see. Um, quick, note, quick notes. Um, I didn't do too much gaming. I've been playing Star Trek online. I've been trying to play that every night trying to get my the uh the main character in my account back up to speed and it's a little bit of a uh, little bit of trial and error um as it turns out there is a barcade near where i work so um after i get out of work one night i'm probably going to go over there and have a burger and see what they've got and of course it will be reviewed of course, for arcade review, and of course, it will have a little bit of a nice little breakdown in arcade rundown. Of course, I do plan on going to the arcade in Brighton, if not this coming weekend, maybe the one after it. It all depends, really. Um, well, let's see what else. Oh, no, that's not too much. I kind of got into a little tiff on Facebook. Uh, with a guy who set a world record on Matt Mania, and I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I could go into particulars, but I'm trying to let that die down because the guy got a little bit miffed that I kind of, uh, how should I say this, underestimated his uh, achievement. I won't go so far as to say I disrespected it because I did not. That's not what I do. I don't disrespect people. But the whole thing is, is that when you see somebody set a record in a video game using the exact same tactics you used when you were playing the game back in 1985 when you were 17 years old, yeah, it it tends to irk me just a little bit. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, enough of that. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm... I got some plans about going to some places, and I'm hoping over the summer 
I can I have a list of places in the metro Detroit area I want to check out. There's one in there's one just outside of downtown Detroit that I want to go to, you know, that everyone's been raving about, so that'll be hopefully coming up soon. Hopefully sometime this month, if not it will be in July. So that's what I have planned coming up. I'm going to try and go to each one of these places once a month and just to check them out and see how they are and of course I'll relay my findings in Arcade Rundown and Arcade Review respectfully. So without any further ado let's get on with the show. Let's move into Top 10s. Top 10s. Top 10 video games of 1984. Now let's see 1984, I'm 15 years old, going on 16. Um, from what I can remember right now, things were still kind of moving pretty well in uh, arcades at this point. Games were Good games were still coming out. Um, but it was starting to slow down a little bit. I mean, the crash of 83 happened, and the repercussions were still being felt. And... Um, yeah, arcades were kind of starting to suffer right around 1984 going into 85. Um, I was still going to the mall on the regular. I was still, you know, going to the arcades whenever I could, whether it be Trouble Mall Arcade, Spanky's, uh, the occasional jaunt to either Milford Rec or Arnie's place with, uh, Mark, and... You know, just getting, finding games wherever I can. Of course, the News Corner is a video gaming, almost a video gaming staple at this point. I mean, it doesn't come into its own and probably until, I want to say, I'd say probably 1986. But it's a nice little place to drop a few quarters, spend a couple of bucks, and have a little bit of fun. Um, so... You know, like I said, I'm still going from place to place and still playing games whenever I can. So, let's get right to this. Okay. Um, as I've said before, these are in no particular order. More or less, they're in alphabetical order. Um, but these are the games that I particularly liked a lot in a particular year. We started going into the late 70s. We've gone through, you know, the... Uh, the hype era of video gaming now we're coming out the other side where now it's starting to slow down but yeah video gaming is still going pretty strong into into 1984 at this point from everything i remember so let's move on to it okay 1942 this game uh was kind of hard to find spanky's didn't have it trumbull mall arcade didn't have it um, let's see, I'm trying to remember the first place I saw it. I think the first place I saw this game was was Milford Rack. I believe it was Milford Rack. Uh, this is a vertical uh, scrolling shooter made by Capcom, released in the arcades in 1984. Um, according to Wikipedia, it's the first game in the 19XX series. It was followed by 1943, The Battle of Midway, which is true. Um, 1942 is set in the Pacific Theater of World War II. You're flying a P-38 Lightning, and you're shooting down enemy planes. 
um, trying to avoid enemy fire, collecting power-ups, and basically you are trying to get all the way to midway. Um, I think this game went all the... I think it was like 42 stages, I think. And as you go along in the game, it just keeps getting harder and harder and harder, as most <laughs> Japanese shooters have a reputation to do. Um... I mean, I used to play this game a lot when I first found it. It was it's it was a lot of fun. It still is, even though I'm nowhere near as good as it now as I used to be. I played an emulation every once in a while. But yeah, it's just one of those games where you have to be in constant motion. You have to constantly be shooting your enemy, shooting the enemies and avoiding their fire. And it gets just more and more difficult as it goes on. It was a fun game. You know, I still play it every once in a while. Unfortunately, none of the arcades around me has it. So, yeah. I mean, it was really good to play back in the day. Okay. Versus Excite Bike. Now, I have to put this out there first. Um, this is when Nintendo first started putting out their Versus uh, machines. And basically, what it was, was one machine with two screens that were at, I want to say, like, 30-degree angles to each other. So you couldn't look, you had to actually, if you were playing it and you wanted to see the other guy's screen, you actually had to, like, look, you know, poke your head all the way to your left or your right, depending on which one it was. And these games you could play in certain games uh, four players, like Tennis was one of them that you could play four players if you wanted to, or at the very least two. I remember when the uh, Trouble Ball Arcade had these games, you know, when they first came in, which was, I want to say like, oh goodness, I want to say like fall of 84, between fall of 84 going into 85, somewhere in there. But that these there's a big difference between these games and the future uh, Play Choice 10 machines that Nintendo would put out. As I said in a Facebook discussion about the Play Choice 10 machines, was they were basically arcade advertisements for their NES machines. The Play Choice 10 machines, I think, started coming out in either 85 or 86. I think it was 86. But, you know, those, ga those games had a select, you know, a select button you could pick from up to 10 different video games and when you put a quarter in it would give you a certain amount of time to play that game um they would have everything from uh super mario brothers to uh baseball stars to golf to oh goodness even i think one machine even had like ninja guy den which was like which came out in like 1987 i think Something like that. But like I said, there were there's, those things were just, you know, arcade advertisements you would play for a quarter. Or, or excuse me, NES advertisements you'd play for a quarter. Uh, the Versus Machines were the predecessors. These games had Tennis, Excite Bike, um, Duck Hunt, Baseball. Baseball was a big one. That's what really got me hooked on these Versus Machines, to be honest. And, like, two or three other games, uh, Golf, yeah, they had Golf, which was another addiction of, addiction that I you know, had with these machines. 
So yeah, you had, but they only had one game in them. You know, like it was it was interesting. These games, these machines were really really fun to play. Uh, the games were fun because. You know, you never saw these games before, and they, as simple as they were, they were really challenging and fun to play. Um, but yeah, for Excitebike, that was the game of choice in the Trommel Arcade, let me tell you. I mean, we were, con we were going at it. It was me, it was Mark, it was at least two or three other regulars of the arcade, and we would just be going back and forth and back and forth with high scores on those games. Yeah, Excite Bike was the game of choice for sure. Basically, it, you are you know, on an enduro motorcycle and you're going through these uh, racetracks that have uh, whoop-de-doos, jumps, long-distance jumps, and it's how it's just how fast can you get through the course and reach the finish line. Basically, if I'm, I'm trying to remember correctly, you had a qualifying run through the tr through that track first then you had a race against uh the other against the computer controlled uh motorcycles and you know if you hit a jump wrong you, you could adjust when you're jumping in the air you could adjust your bike in mid-air to land a certain way so that you wouldn't lose speed when you when you came to came down to land and i just remember you know it took me a long time to master that game and i just remember you know me and my buddy mark and a bunch of other guys we were just constantly in competition with each other like if i remember a couple of times walking in the arcade and you know walking by the excite bike machine which was like right by the entrance to the arcade um and you know, I just happened to look over and see the high score list there, and I'd see Mark's name up there, or one of the other guys, I'd be like, oh, hell no. And I'd go over there, and I'd drop a quarter in, and I'd, I'd play it, and, you know, I'd do my best to get that high score. You know, a lot of competition with those games. Uh, speaking of competition, Hypersports. This is the sequel to Track and Field, which came out uh, in 1983. Um... You know, this game was a lot more, a lot faster, a lot more difficult to play than track and field was. By the end of 1984, everybody who was playing, who was playing uh, track and field pretty much mastered it. The only thing that you, only thing that made you uh, a real master at the game were the last two events in track and field, which were the hammer toss and the high jump. And that's where you separated the men from the boys, pretty much. Um, with hypersports, it was a lot different. Uh, let's see. I don't have, I have to look up, look it up later, but the sports I remember in hypersports were, um, let's see, uh, gymnastics. Uh, basically, you jump on, you know, the, the springboard, vault off the you know vault off the pommel horse and somersault in the air and you would somersault and the more you somersaulted and you and if you stuck the landing just right meaning your guy would tuck as soon as he would jump in the air he would tuck and you would start you would hit the run buttons to make him you know flip in the air and then you had to sit get his feet land straight down 
to get the highest uh, rating score. Um, it had skeet shooting. It had, um, what was it? I want to say 100 meter freestyle swimming. It had weightlifting. Um, it had the triple jump. I mean, it, like I said, just much more difficult, you know, to really master these games because when uh, track and field came out, yeah, they were fairly easy to master. So, yeah, I mean, Hypersports was a lot of fun to play. I was nowhere near as good at it as my buddy Mark was, but I tried my best. <laughs> I always did when it came to him because I was always competing with him. Uh, Karate Champ. This, to me, was the game of 1984. Yeah. And, of course, I will say that because I almost beat that game in 1984. Um, basically, this I will give this a, a breakdown in, um, in uh, Time for Some Strategy later in the show. But, basically, this is the precursor to Street Fighter. Street Fighter took from this game. <laughs> this was the... This was the granddaddy of the uh, modern-day fighting game. You wouldn't have uh, Mortal Kombat 11. You wouldn't have um, Street Fighter V with, without Karate Champ. Karate Champ was, was one that started it. Uh, it was a one- or two-player game, and basically you would tr it was basically a point-fighting karate match. And depending on what moves you did... Uh, you would score points if you hit your opponent with them, and depending on the move and the timing of the move and the distance uh, from where you started the move when you hit him, you would either get a half point or a full point. And it would go up to two points, and the pers first person to score two points was the winner. So, you know, Karate Champ. I'll get into it later. Kung Fu Master. This was the other game of 1984 for me. Well, one of. Um, this one is a side-scrolling beat-em-up, um, and basically you're trying to rescue your girlfriend from the Kung Fu Master at the end of five levels. And at the end of, you know, of course, you're going from one level to the other, you have enemies who are basically just trying to grab onto you and drain your life away, and you can get, get away from them by hitting them with punches and kicks. Um... And of course, as you go along, you have these guys who will throw knives at you, you know, and then you could dis you have to dispatch them before they throw another knife at you, because when they hit you with the knife, it drains a lot of your life, and so on, you know, until the end of the first level. First level's a guy with a stick in his hand, and you take care of him, and then the next one, next level, and you know what? I'm just going to mark it down in my, my episodes. I'm going to do uh, time for some strategy for this one, too. But, yeah, you basically go through five levels with varying enemies and varying challenges until you reach the Kung Fu Master, and then you're in for a him for a heck of a fight. And if you defeat him, then you get your girlfriend back, but then it starts all over again. So, yeah, Kung Fu Master, that's one of my favorites. I'm going to put that in time for some strategy for sure. Um, Marble Madness. This one, a lot of people really liked. I wasn't a big fan of it, to be honest. I really wasn't. Um, basically, it's a uh, side and vertical scrolling game where you're a marble trying to make it to the end of a level and trying to avoid falling off the edge of the levels and trying to avoid enemies 
and trying to avoid various uh, various obstacles to get to the ends of the level. I actually looked at someone on YouTube who actually has a world record for Marble Madness. Um, it wasn't a very long game, but it was extremely challenging. That much I remember. Mark was really, really good at that game. I mean, I loved just watching him play it because he was just—he was really good at it, and he—he he really liked this game because he was constantly playing it. So yeah, I mean, yeah, Marble Madness is just one of those games where you have to have really good control over the trackball, which controls your marble, and you have to be able to visually figure out whether uh, a particular route is going to get you to your goal or if it's just a trap to, you know, to uh, kill your, uh, to kill your, to destroy your marble. And it's timed, so that's where, and as you, re when you reach the end of the stage, you receive a point bonus depending on how much time is left and so forth and so on. Um, yeah, Marble Madness. It's, it's a great game to play, just it's one of those that never really grasped me, you know. Okay. Punch-Out and Super Punch-Out. Okay. I've talked about Punch-Out um, in reference to a streamer on Twitch by the name of Zallard1. He's a world record holder in, in a bunch of different iterations of this game. I'm going to talk about Punch-Out Arcade here. It's a boxing game, as you would think it is. And you're basically a challenger trying to defeat the champion... And you're basically trying to, uh, if, you, if you're good enough to win the title, now all of a sudden you have to come back against various challengers who are much more difficult to defeat, and so forth and so on. Yeah, with the first one, it, you know, first one is, is good, but Super Punch-Out was so much better. It was, in my opinion. And the funny part is, these games came out in the same year, 1984. I, I'm trying to remember... I think Punch-Out came out in, like, spring of 84, and I think Super Punch-Out came out in, like, fall of 84, going into winter. Um, uh, it, the funny part is, Super Punch-Out, even though it's more difficult, uh, the action is faster, there's now a different uh, element to the game, where you not only have your punch buttons for your left and your right, and, your, and of course, your Super Punch, be it a right hook or an uppercut, depending... Now you have a duck feature, a ducking feature, which is basically pulling straight up. I don't mean pushing up, like pushing the stick forward or whatever. I mean pulling the actual joystick up from the, uh, the uh, control panel. That causes your fighter to duck because each one of the, I think, let me think, one, two, there out of all of the challengers that you go up against, three of them have attacks that cannot be blocked and cannot be dodged. They must be ducked. Those are the first one, which is Bear Hugger, the second one, which is Dragon Chan, and the champion, which is Super Macho Man. They all have attacks which you have to pull up on the stick to make your, make your fighter duck them because they cannot be avoided or blocked. So that's the major difficult, major... Uh, difference. It adds a whole different dimension to the game, and of course the action is much, much faster than Punch-Out is. Um, okay. Return of the Jedi. This is a isometric three-quarter view uh, scrolling game by Atari 
which coincides with the movie, of course. Um, this one basically is starts with Luke Skywalker on a speeder bike in the Forest of Endor. Then it goes on to, I believe, and it goes on to the Death Star. I'm missing a stage, I think. I'm going to have to look this up, so time out. This is a, like I said, a three-quarter scrolling uh, action game. Uh, the first stage is you playing Luke Skywalker, and you're going through the Forest of Endor, trying not to get shot down by uh, speed. Uh, excuse me, uh, stormtroopers on speeder bikes, or uh, crashing into trees or anything like that. Um, it's a it, this game was fun. I have to admit, it was a lot of fun. Um, the second stage. Or at least, you know, second stage is the Death Star run, you know, which you're flying the Millennium Falcon, and basically you're trying not to get shot down by TIE Interceptors, and you're trying not to run into uh, the various obstacles of the Death Star. You're trying to get to the, uh, get to the, uh, the main reactor to blow it up, and then you have to fly your Millennium Falcon out again. And, you know, they're, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I love this game. <laughs> you know, it, as weird as it was that, that Return of the Jedi came out in 84 instead of them, Atari just going with, they're going in, you know, going with uh, the Empire Strikes Back in 84, you would think that would be a, be, uh, be one of the decision that they would make. But, so, I mean, yeah, it's just, you know, it's just kind of weird. Um, another thing they would do, another stage in this game is where now after you get destroyed the Death Star, now you're on level two. Now you're in, you know, on speeder bike again. And once you get through this one, now it gets harder because the stormtroopers are now, you know, really trying to set you up and trying to shoot you or trying to ram you or force you to make a mistake and run into trees. Um... There are, you know, these uh, hollow log tunnels you can fly through for extra points. Then, then you know, of course, the Ewoks set traps along the way. And, you know, things like that. And it's the same thing in the second level. But the difference is now, after you get done with the speeder bike one, you're still on Endor. And now you're Chewbacca who's in an ATST, which is a, you know, uh, all-terrain scout uh, transport, which is, you know, the little, you know, the smaller walker you would see in, like, Return of the Jedi and The Empire Strikes Back, kind of, sort of. And now you're basically trying to get to the, uh, get to the bunker where the shield generator is, and then there are these nice little cutscenes with, uh, the Millennium Falcon with uh, X-Wing escorts, you know, and you're attacking, you know, TIE fighters and Star Destroyers and stuff like that. It's actually really cool to watch, really cool game. It's awesome. It's a nice little break. It's not so, not so simple, should I say. You know, it's kind of interesting. And of course, while you're going, they're shooting at you and, you know, you hear, uh, Lando Calrissian making, uh, statement, not statements, you know, you know, the quotes from the movie, you know, engage the Star Destroyers at point-blank range, blah, 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 that kind of thing. So, yeah. And then you reach the bunker, and then they blow the bunker. 
and then now you're back in the uh, Millennium Falcon. Now you're making the run towards the Death Star, which is kind of cool. It's I like this. It's awesome. It's a nice little switch. It's another. It makes another mini. Now of course it's faster. The tie interceptors sh are quicker. They shoot faster. You know they shoot at you quicker. You know they're trying to bump you, make you make mistakes, and so forth and so on. So yeah, that's Return of the Jedi. You know, like I said, well, it it was a good game. I do have to say that. <laughs> you know, it you know it kind of it kind of I didn't particularly like it one hundred percent, but it was it was a good game. So I have to give it its give it its due. Let's see now. Where are we? Super Basketball. <laughs> this one. This game, I got uh, I got well acquainted with this game in uh, the game room in Bolarama because this is the, this is like one of the few places that had it. I think the only other place I knew of that had this game back in the day was um, Milford Rec. I think they got a Super Basketball at one point, but basically it's just like it says. Um, you are you have a squad of five. It's side-scrolling. Um, it's a weird dynamic because there are just some things, some physical things that happen in this game that just should not happen. <laughs> I mean, to my consternation at some points. But basically, your goal is to um, your team. The team you have is down by a certain number of points, and you have to. Uh, score enough points and just uh, get enough points to beat the team by you know before the time runs out. Now, the trick is is that when you score points, um, you get more time on the clock. I think you start with like twenty seconds or something like that, and you basically have to beat a. I think you're down by like what ten points or something like that, and each time you score a basket, you get more time put on the clock. And the trick is to score quickly enough to where the time on that's put back on the clock is more than the time you expended to shoot the shot. Um, each, you know, you, you get you score points for also for making shots, but you get more points for dunks, and you also get more time for dunks. And the game gets harder. The defense gets crazier. Um, your teammates are different in that they, yeah, there are just some teammates that have different characteristics, although you don't know it at first. I don't think you really realize it until, like, you get to, like, the fourth team. Um, but once you do that, you know, then you realize there's one guy, once he gets the ball, he's flying up, you know, flying up and down the court, like, really, really fast. And, you know, I called him Michael Jordan <laughs> because, you know, you could basically, you basically pass that guy the ball and he will blow by defenders and, you know, get to the basket and dunk it. And you would get like six seconds put on the clock when you've only expended three seconds to get to get to that point. Um, there are fouls in the game. There is charging. So you can't like run directly into the opposition. And every time you have a turnover or a block shot, or a charging call, anything like that, time is taken off the clock. So, especially later on in the game where things are getting really hard, 
um, that can that will derail your game faster than anything else. You basically you go through like high school, college, uh, like different uh, like national teams. I think you go through like USA. I mean, not USA like Japan's national team, USA's national team, and then you go all the way up to the pro team, and um. Of course, since there is actual scores, you know, the point scores being kept, like every basket you make is, you know, a, a certain point value, dunks are a certain point value. Um, the it, Depending on, you know, the time you have left when you actually make the shot to beat the other team, it, it, relate, it turns into a bonus, which is like, oh goodness, I want to say it's like 10,000 points times the level of the uh game at the time so you are running if you actually get to you know the pro team and things like that you're and you actually beat them and you beat them handily and you get a really good time uh a lot of time left over yeah you will get like mil hundreds of thousands of points if not a million i mean personally i think my highest score on this game is like upwards of four million points and then with each, I think each, after each, you know, the second team that you beat, there's a challenging stage where you're shooting free throws. And basically, it's basically a button mashing contest because basically all you have to do is just hit it and, you know, shoot a whole bunch of different free throws, shoot a whole bunch of free throws into the basket and you have to score a lot in order to get the, then you get a bonus at the end and then it's on to the next team. Yeah, Super Basketball is one of my all-time favorites. It, you know, it, it def, if I have to make a top 10 out of my top 10s, <laughs> it would be one of them for sure. Okay, moving right along to my honorable mentions. Bank Panic. Uh, this was a wonderful game by Sega. It's an old West style game um, where you're basically a the sheriff in a town defending the bank against uh, would-be bank robbers. It's basically, there are three doors in front of you. You have three fire buttons, you know, which are keyed to each door. And as you move, you know, move through the various doors in the bank, I think there are like 10 of them or 12 of them, something like that. I haven't played in a while, so I can't remember. Um, the door, you know, as you, you will see above the number according to each door on top, you will see a red light. And when there's a red light at the bottom just above the uh, there's a red light just above the the corresponding number that means that someone's there it whether it be a citizen coming to deposit money whether it's a bank robber trying to rob the bank teller um or if it's you know s some sort of uh, bonus challenge um and so forth and so on and only when you get all these citizens to deposit money in each of the doors does the level end and of course, it gets harder and faster and faster and harder until you know, <laughs> until you lose all your lives and the game is over. It's one of my favorite games too. I loved it. One, of, I really love playing it. Um, let's see, Do Run Run. <laughs> this is the sequel to Mr. Do. Um, this is where I just stuck to Mr. Do because Do Run Run was okay. Um, basically, it's a a semi platforming game where you are Mr. Do, of course, you don't have your Powerball anymore. Now you are dealing with uh, roller coasters. 
and basically what you have to do is collect all you know basically uh run around the, the platforms of course they're you know they are pretty much in a if they may be like it's hard to describe um basically it's more or less like a uh roller coaster ride but instead you're trying to get to the top where your flag is which will once you collect it you get a bonus and end the level and possibly even earn uh bonus letters to spell extra and get yourself an extra life but there are various challenges here not just the uh not just the roller coaster cards which come along every so often and you have to time them in a certain way it's it's hard <laughs> it's really hard game i mean i was okay at it but i wasn't great editor's note i meant to say this was mr do's wild ride instead of do run run mia culpa now back to the show uh firefox this is the uh atari laser disc game uh which is a tie-in to the movie starring clint eastwood uh basically you are flying the uh, Russian fighter that you stole from the Russian government, and you're trying basically to get back to friendly, you know, back to friendly uh, airspace. Um, there are different fighters that try to shoot you down. There are various missiles that try to shoot you down, and also you can, you know, also um, there are also different uh, challenges along the way in the game. I was never really good at it. I mean, I was okay at it, but I just wasn't as good as some of the other guys I used to hang around with. But it wasn't a bad game. It was actually pretty nice, uh, a nice uh, tie-in. Okay, Gapless. This is the sequel to Galaga. Um, it's a lot more challenging. Um, and at the same time, you know, if the, the premises are still there. They're just uh, taken to another level, shall I say. Uh... Galaga, you know, Gapless is pretty much the same premise as Galaga is. It's just a lot harder. And um, they're different. They're also varying ways to capture um, enemy fighters now. Um, you can capture a whole bunch of them and they just go flowing out at the sides for ridiculous amounts of firepower, which you need for the challenging stages. Um, which are a whole lot different than what Galaga was. Basically, you have to get a certain number of hits on the targets, and when you hit them, they just basically spin and go over to the other side of the screen, and then you hit them again, they do the same thing, except they move faster and faster and faster and faster, until finally they just go jetting off at the bottom of the screen, just above your fighter, you know, and jet off to the side of the screen to end it. And... If you get, if you, a, you spell out gapless, and I think there's like a, a border that you have to do with each hit, you get oh, you get a really good bonus. So yeah, that's gapless. It's, I wasn't really a fan of it. I mean, I liked it. It was okay, but yeah, I, it just was, it was a little too much for me, to be completely honest. Okay, Tapper. This one is Bally Midway's baby. They first started it off as a Budweiser tie-in. You are a bartender trying to satisfy hungry, I mean hungry, <laughs> thirsty customers. Um, you basically, you have a four-way joystick, which putting going up and down puts you at the head of each of uh, the different bars. 
and then you have either to the left or the right you have a uh a, a tap draw you know just like a, a tap draw in you know when you're bartending when a guy's bartending same kind of thing and basically what it would do is it will fill up your it'll fill up a mug of beer and then it, once it's full and you let the tap go it will throw it back down the bar to the waiting customer and your trick is to try to clear each one of the bars before they either um either get to the end of the bar at that point then something then they start they attack you and you lose a life or if you give them a beer and they go only go back a certain certain distance uh they'll stop they'll drink the beer and then they'll throw the empty back up the bar and if you let the bar fall off the edge of the edge of the bar you're you lose a life and of course there was a huge uh to do because this to the pmrcs of the world somehow this was advertising the drinking of you know, drinking of alcohol for underage kids which was the biggest load of crap i've ever heard even back in 85 84 you know i'm a you know i'm a 15 year old kid and i didn't think it was that i just thought it was a cool game it wasn't going to make me go run out and go buy a budweiser come on <laughs> and but because of that whole to do bally midway basically changed it to root beer tapper where basically now you're just drawing root beer instead of uh alcoholic beer okay time pilot 84 this, of course, is the sequel to, sequel to Time Pilot, which came out in 1982. Um, this one is a lot, is a lot, kind of, it's a little weirder. That's the best way for me to put it. Um, the premise is kind of the same, although the execution of it is really different. Basically, what it is, now you're flying above this really wild-looking sort of, sci-fi slash tron based uh cityscape you're flying above it you know in a fighter and now you have um two different types of enemies you have to deal with or, well actually three but you have enemies that you can shoot with your guns but there are also enemies that you can only shoot with missiles there are ground emplacements you can take out there are formations of enemies that you can get you know you can kind of outmaneuver get behind and shoot them all down before they fly off the screen for bonus points and once you shoot a number of enemies then the mothership comes out which is basically comes out and shoots guided missiles at you you basically have to maneuver your fighter until you get a lock on with your missiles and shoot it and destroy the mothership then you go on to the next stage and the game just goes on from there it gets harder i loved it this was a great game I mean, this took Time Pilot, you know, which is a good game in its own right, and just gave it a whole different twist. And it was one of the best games I've ever played. You know, I, you know, I still play it in emulation to this day, actually. Trivial Pursuit. This, of course, is the arcade version of uh, the Trivial Pursuit board game, which, by at this point, in this point, was part of the was like a part of the american lexicon at this point you know everybody was talking about playing trivial pursuit you know at some point there were different uh versions of it there some of them were all sports some of them were all movies i think there were there's one more that had like really really tough questions if i remember correctly but basically 
Trivial Pursuit is it's the same as the arcade. I mean, same as the arcade, same as the board game. Um, you basically roll a die and you answer question, answer trivia questions. And of course, if you answer them correctly, um, you you know you're able to get a certain color on you know certain color on your control on your uh, icon. And then you have to answer the big trivial pursuit one in the middle, you know, to to beat the game. Um, basically, the problem is is that if you missed questions in this one, I think you only had like two or no, you had three questions. You could only miss three questions before the game was over. So you had to be really good with your with your uh, with your knowledge of trivia. Oh, uh, let's see, two tigers. This game, I this game was actually a lot of fun. Um, this game, you're basically trying to destroy, you're, you're going basically back to World War II. You're in a fighter craft, which has, um, machine guns and bombs. And below you on the sea is a ship. And what you have to do is not only bomb the ship to try to punch holes in it to have it spring, you know, spring a leak. And if you got a certain number of leaks sprung on the ship, it would destroy it and you would get through the level and then you go on to the next one. Um, in the first stage, I think it's like three, th I think it's like three ships you have to destroy. Each one you have to put two holes in it. Um, also, you could, only, you could do it with your bombs. You could also shoot down the varying... Uh, aerial enemies flying around. Of course, it, this is one of those which is almost completely is time based. Basically, you didn't have to worry about losing lives. Um, you could get shot down by the sh by the fighters. You could collide with them. Um, but basically, what you would do is you would shoot these air these fighters down, and basically they would crash into the ship, and they would either they would impact on the superstructure, which didn't do anything, or they would impact on the actual ship itself, which would be, uh, which would spring holes in it. Eventually, you'd have to like put three holes in three. You had to put three holes in the ship to have it spring a leak. And also, there would be uh, mines at the bottom, you know, cruising from right to left or left to right, depending. And if you shot them, basically, it would. Uh, like, it would basically, like, take a whole chunk out of the bottom level. And that way, it would make it easier for you. The, the problem was you had to figure out how to time and how to time the uh, the fighters to where when you shoot them, shot them down, they would fall in a certain way and they would in, you know, hit the ship where you would want them. That was the tough part. Um, yeah, like I said, it was a lot of fun. It was a great game to play. Uh, some games actually had some uh, a shield that you would use to avoid being shot down. Some didn't. So, you know, it was what, just one of those kind of games where, you know, it all depended on whether it was a dedicated cabinet or if it was like a Tron uh, machine conversion. It all depended. Uh, let's see. And finally, Cobra Command. This is a, a Laserdisc game by Data East, which is... Uh, written, not written, but drawn in the Japanese anime style. Um, basically, you just have to figure out which ways to move, uh, depending on the actual level, you know, the level you're on. Um, and when you're, uh, when you would come up against enemy 
aircraft, whether it be choppers or whether it would be uh, actual fighter jets or, you know, ground targets even. It would choose whether you would use the, the machine guns or the uh, missiles. And it's a really hard, it, I mean, it's in the same kind of, uh, same kind of vein as Dragon's Lair was. There was a set way to do it, but it required a lot of memoriz memorization. So, you know, I mean, I actually saw, I actually saw a video on YouTube of a guy who actually, who beat Cobra Command from beginning to end. And it was interesting, you know, but I used to play it, but the thing was, I used to get really frustrated by it because it was a lot harder than, and a lot more, how should I say, um, it was a lot more exciting than Dragon's Lair was, and Dragon's Lair was pretty exciting. But, you know, you had this whole thing of where you had to have hit the right button, you know, in order to shoot down the enemy choppers or shoot down the enemy gun emplacements or move a, move your chopper a certain way to avoid crashing and so forth. And if you didn't do it, it just, you would just lose your lives in a really, really quickly. You know, just like Dragon's Lair, as a matter of fact, just in a different way. So, yeah, those are my games of 1984. Um, you have any questions, comments, anything of that ilk, you know how to get a hold of me. It all starts with arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, moving on from there, let's go on to time for some strategy. Time for some tragedy, Karate Champ. Okay, this is one of the games that I can honestly and truly call myself an expert at, especially back in 1984 and 1985. Um, like I said, and I've said it several times throughout these episodes, this is a game I came within one fight of beating. Um, it was when uh, I found my buddy Mark on Facebook several years back. We were talking about that. He brought that up, as a matter of fact. And I said, yeah. And I said to him, yeah, that's one of the few games I knew I could beat you at. And he admitted to it, even though he thought it was funny. Um, like I said, this was the granddaddy of the, the modern day fighting game. You know, like I said, there wouldn't be a Street Fighter without this game. There wouldn't be Mortal Kombat without this game. Um, World or World Heroes, um, Killer Instinct, any of these games. Without this game, they would not exist. Um, like I said, this is a karate point fighting tournament. And basically what you're trying to do is um, rack up as high of a score as you possibly can uh through this game, going from beginning to end. Um, you have two joysticks. One is for movement. Uh, moving it right moves your player to the right. Moving it left moves it to the left. And also when you're being attacked by the other fighter, that's also your block. Um, you can block high and you can block in the medium. You cannot block low. Any low attacks that you are subjected to, you have to actually push forward up on the joystick to make your character jump. Um, 
and of course pushing pulling down squat you know makes your character squat down um okay now with the other stick there is now if you're now if you leave the movement stick at neutral um moving up on the other stick is a high kick the moving down is a low kick moving to the right depending on your distance from your enemy it's either a front kick or a reverse punch and moving backwards on the other one is a back kick now you have different various ways of attacking which is a <clears throat> combination of moving the sticks in a certain way now i'm going completely off memory here so if i'm wrong get a hold of me and i'll cop to it but let's see um, when your character is moving forward and you push up on the right stick, that gives you a lunge punch. Basically, this is the, the most one of the most powerful attacks you have because it covers a great deal of distance and it also scores the most points. Depending on your, whether you get the right distance from your enemy or not, it's either 500 points and a half point on the scoreboard or a thousand points and a full point on the scoreboard. Uh, let's see, moving towards the enemy, moving the right stick to the right, um, that will give you a meaty, um, a midsection lunge punch. Same thing as the, the lunge punch, which is pulling up on the joystick, the right joystick, but that one moves towards the head, this one moves to the body. Um, that one can give you 200 or 400 points and is a half point. Uh, let's see. Let's see, moving towards the enemy and you pull down is still a low kick, for, if I remember correctly. I think, no, no, no. Yeah, moving towards the enemy and pulling down the right stick is a low kick. That only gives you one or 200 points and is a half point. Let's see. Now, moving the, moving the, if you're moving the stick up, the left stick up, which would make your character jump if you didn't move the other stick. Let's see. Moving it towards the towards your opponent to the right at the same you move it at the same time, it gives you a jumping side kick. The also the mo, you know the most powerful attack there is. Um, there are three attacks that are really powerful and I'll go through them. The uh, the lunge punch the head is one, the jumping side kick is the second one. Same thing. It all depends on your distance between yourself and your enemy when you launch it. If you hit the if you hit it right on, you get a thousand points and a full point. Um, if you are too close, if you're too close, you miss entirely. Actually, if you're just a little too far away, it's five hundred points and a half point. Uh, let's see. Moving it up, moving both sticks up, that give, makes your character backflip. You know, that makes your character backflip. Basically, he will jump in the air and just backflip away. Uh, let's see. Up and down. Up and down, up and down. Let's see. That, I think, is also a... I think that's a low kick. All right, I'm going to have to look it up because, yeah, my memory just ran out. Uh, pulling, Pushing up on the left stick and pulling down on the right stick makes your character... Uh, makes your character somersault forward towards your enemy um let's see and pushing up on the left stick and left on the right stick that gives you a jumping back kick which basically it's basically 
your character jumps up, turns in midair, and launches a uh, a back kick at you. That's that's also the most powerful, one of the most powerful uh, moves in the game. That gives you five hundred or a thousand points and a half point or full point, respectively. Okay. Uh, moving on from there, if you're squatting, uh, pushing it, you know, pulling down, pulling down or pulling forward. On the right stick gives you a front foot sweep. Basically, your character squats all the way down and kicks out his foot at the feet of your enemy. Um, and if pulling down and to the left gives you a back foot sweep, that attacks enemies behind you. That's three attacks you can do when an enemy is you know at your back. You can do a back kick, you can do a jumping back kick, or you can do a back foot sweep. Those are three attacks. And if, let's see... Also, uh, I forgot to mention when you're moving forward, if you tap the stick to the to the uh, left, you tap the right stick to the left, you're actually able to turn your fighter. You can change direction. So yeah, then there's that. Okay. Um, so if you're you know squatting and you push up on the right stick, that's the squatting reverse launch punch. Uh, that is a uh, the foot sweeps, by the way, I forgot to tell you. The foot sweeps are all half points. I think it's like 100, I think it's like 100, 200, or 400, depending on where you actually hit your enemy. Um, the squatting reverse lunge punch, which is one of the most versatile moves in the game, actually. That keeps you, that basically, that basically gets you out of most of, most uh, situations, and you can actually do a, a counterattack. Um... Depending on where your distance is from your enemy, it's either 400 or 800 points, a half or a full point. Let's see. Uh, let's see now. Um, moving to the left, like I said, is a block, you know, or your character moves backward. Um, moving the right stick to the left with the left stick is a back kick. Um, moving forward is the background kick, which is actually another one that's 500 or 1,000 points and is either a half point or full point, depending on where you actually hit the enemy. And let's see. That one is a wonderful one because, like I said, you want to gain as many points as possible. So early in the game, you basically want to go for the high point ones. You want to go for the upper lunge punches. You want to go for the jumping side kicks. You want to go for the uh, squatting reverse lunge punch because those are the ones that net you the most points. Um, let's see. The okay. Um, where was I? Oh, that's right. Um, moving left on the left stick and pushing up gives you the upper lunge punch, which is like the other one, but it doesn't cover as much ground. That one gives you three hundred or six hundred points, respectively, full or half point. Um, and of course, uh, let's see, I think I did, I think that's everything. So basically what you want to do in the first like five stages, you want to be as aggressive as possible. Um, my whole thing was, is that you had to learn where the timing was when you, when they tell you to fight, you start moving towards each other. Basically you want to lunge punch him to start. And once you get the timing down, that's a thousand points, full point. And then the second one, instead of doing a lunge punch, you want to do a jumping sidekick. Same thing. 
the distance. If you get the distance right, you get you basically get your two points. You win the fight, and you get a bonus um, from the timer, uh, from the time left on the timer, and so forth and so on. Um, it's not until like the sixth fight where you have to modify your strategy. Basically, now the uh, basically now the enemy is going to start taking the initiative. He's going to attack first. And it all depends on what he attacks with. You have to kind of be on the lookout for what he's going to do. Um, he's either going to start doing a whole bunch of uh, round kicks, which is, you know, kicking like at your face from a standing position. And, or, and when he does that, basically what you want to do is once you see him do that, you basically want to time it to where he's going to attack with that. You want to duck and hit him with a squatting reverse lunge punch. Uh, that's easy, 800 points, full point, everything's good. The next, the second attack he's going to do, he's going to come at you with a front kick. Um, when he does that, um, the easiest way to counter that is once he does that, once you block it, you basically, this is the whole thing, is learning how to block and let the block go. As soon as the block is done and he starts to move away from you, you let go and then you do your counterattack. Or if you're really good, you basically do it straight off the block. That takes a lot of practice, let me tell you. <laughs> I spent a lot of quarters learning how to do that. Um, basically, if he attacks you with the front kick, you can either counter with the upper punch, the round kick, or the jumping side kick if you're really feeling like um, being uh, experimental. <laughs> shall we say. I mean, you can do uh, the lunge punch, or not the lunge punch, you can do the reverse punch, you can do um, uh, a front kick back to him, but sometimes he'll block it and come back with a front kick to where you can't block it, and he'll get a half point from it, but that's no big deal. Um, but usually, another thing to do is to block every front kick he does until he decides to do a jumping side kick. Basically, he'll attack you like three, maybe four times. You block each one. He'll come back, and then he'll try the jumping sidekick, and that's where you really get your um, get your points from. Because you can do a uh, upper lunge punch. You can do upper punch, do a round kick, a squatting reverse lunge punch. Um, that's the thing about the jumping sidekick. It leaves you really vulnerable for like a half second to where you can be countered in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, yeah. Um, the other thing, let's see. Um, like I said, there's sometimes he'll come out, he'll go right to the jumping sidekick, same thing. Um, then right after that, he'll come out with the upper punch. He won't do a lunge punch as long as you don't stand there and not do anything. If you move towards him, he will do that. You block that, and then you come back with a round kick or squatting reverse lunge punch, or you go back with an upper lunge punch of your own. Full point, and everything's good. Then after that, he'll actually come out and do a low kick. This one, I found a nice little counter for that works up until you reach the higher points in the game. Once he comes out with that low kick, he is very vulnerable because he'll do it, and then he'll back up, and then he'll start coming back at you. Once he does the low kick and then he starts to back up, you go right at him and you do a jumping side kick. Instant 1,000 points. It always works if you get the timing right. Um, let's see. From there, um, there's one where it looks like he's like 
doing like this dance move. I'm not dance move. It looks like he's faking stepping forward, but he's stepping back. He's like doing that in, in a thing. Once you get to a certain distance, he'll he'll release a uh, a um. Oh goodness, he will do a um, back round kick at you, which is the basically turn uh, turning side kick at the head, basically. You know, or the turning round kick at the head. He spins, he basically spins around, and then he tries to hit you in the face with it. You basically can block that and do a squatting reverse lunge punch or a round kick. You know, those will almost always net you uh, maximum points and a full point on the on the uh, on the point board. Basically, what you want to do is get through these fights quickly, especially once you get past. Oh, you get up to like. Oh, what, the 8th Dan, ninth Dan, somewhere in there. Basically, it's a set of 24 fights you have to go through. And once you get through the first, see, the first four, or first four or five, depending on the difficulty of the machine, um, the first four or five are easy. You basically can just uh, be aggressive, attack the opponent, and get your points and get off the screen. Uh, where you're... Where your bread is buttered are the bonus stages, especially the board breaking stage, where, like I said, your your character's moving, dance, jumping in and out towards the uh, uh, a, a table with a bunch of brick, oh not bricks, a bunch of boards on it, and you want to get as close as you can before you hit the right stick, and he'll unloose a kick at it to try to break them all, and you'll get one hundred points for each bricky break, up to ten. And if you break all 10, you get 2,000 points, I believe. Um, like I said, second, the first one, the first challenging stage, they basically throw objects at you. And as you're going through the game uh, with each one of these challenging stages, they start throwing them at you faster. They start coming at faster. So if you know your moves and you have it, you can actually try to attack them and break them for points. It's only like 100 points. I think it's like, if you break all of them, it's like, you know, a thousand points, you know, a hundred points for each one. So then of course, like I said, there's the bull. Uh, the first bull is going to run at you from the right hand side of the screen. You basically squat down and you want to do the reverse lunge punch at him because he'll punch him right in the head, but you have to get the timing right. If you do it too early or too late, he'll just run you over and the challenging stage is over. Um, the squatting reverse lunge punch, if you hit him, you know, put a knot on his head, you get 2000 points. Then stand up immediately, which means return the left left stick to neutral, and then watch the bull come out from the left. You have basically about, I want to say, half a second or so before he gets into range. You hit him with a back kick, which is left on the right stick when you're standing there normally, and you'll get another 2,000 points. Now, the trick here is you have to change your direction to get the last one which is going to come out from the right-hand side of the stick. The reverse, the squatting reverse lunge punch does not work. Does not work. Basically, the easiest way to do it, as soon as you hit the second bull with the back kick, do a jumping back kick. That's up on the left, left on the right stick. That way, that automatically changes your facing. And then the third bull comes out, and then you just hit him with a back kick, 2,000 points, and it's over. You know, you get 6,000 points onto the next fight. Um, like I said, then you get to the, the second set of screens, um, usually, yeah, 
the machine I played in Bolarama that I almost beat, I got a score of, what was it, 210,500 points. Um, once you get to the second set of screens, it, this will be the determination of the difficulty level. Um, usually by the 12th screen, um, if the, if you go through the first 12 and the opponent is not moving like, you know, a crack monkey, then you're, you're on a really good, you're on a really low, uh, difficulty level. Um, but you, this guy will come in and he will attack really fast and you have to be really good with your blocks and your counters. You have to be dead on. You know, it took me a very long time to get to the 24th fight only to win the first fight and lose the second by two points to like one and a half. It was really bad. I mean, basically by the time I got around to the last one, I didn't even know it. I was just get playing the game on autopilot. Um, and then, um, you know, basically you have to be on point with your blocks, with your counters. You have to be really fast. You cannot screw around at all. You know, you have to be really good to get through the second set of fights, especially once you get past uh, stage, at least stage 14. You know, like I said, you know, but that will happen at the end. Your opponent will start moving really, really fast, and you have to really be good, and you really have to know what you're doing. You cannot screw around. Um... Now, if, you know, depending on where you end up at, you know, where you, if you lose, uh, basically each one of the girls at the end of the stages that you win, they are collected for bonus points at the end of the game. And if you go through, I don't know how the scoring is at the very end. I haven't seen a YouTube video where somebody's gone through this game. I've never seen anybody who's actually beat it. Um... Basically what it is, is it's 500 points for each level that you get. So if you end on level, say, 13, you get 13 of, you know, get, you get 13 times 5, which is, what, 6,500 points? And that's added to your score, and the game's over. And basically, it's not an easy game going through it the second time. I cannot stress that enough. I have tried at various points ever since I got that far. I've never gotten that far again. <laughs> this game's been out for 35 years. I've never been able to beat it. I would love to, but I can't. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I just don't have the dedication that I had at once, you know, back in those days. But yeah, it's a wonderful game. I mean, Karate Champ is fun. You know, I love playing it, although it just frustrates me that I can't get as far in it as I once did. So, yeah, that's time for some strategy. Uh, any thoughts, comments? you have any tips on Karate Champ? Do you know somebody who actually beat it? If you do know someone who beat it, please, I want to know. Let me know what happens, because I've never found out what happens at the end. No one's ever beat it to my knowledge. Of course, you know, there's probably somebody over in Japan who's, you know, beat it a thousand times or whatever, because that's where the game came from, but still... I don't know anybody who's actually beaten Karate Champ. Not over here in the States. So, yeah, that's Karate Champ. Get a hold of me. You got any, any information? Got any, you know, any sort of things pertaining to the game? Yeah, get a hold of me. Arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com Okay, with that being done, let's move on to Arcade Review. 
Arcade Review. Lafayette Plaza Arcade. Okay. Um, I remember when I was doing, when I first started doing this show, I was going to do this off the top of my head, but when I started doing Arcade Review, I just had to cheat, kind of cheat and write it down. So here it is with all of the, with the notes that I, what I had. Um, okay. Lafayette Plaza, once again, uh, that was in Lafayette Plaza Mall, downtown Bridgeport. Uh, was only there for like 1982 to 1983. I mean, it was there for basically a year, maybe a year and a half. It was not there long. Okay, so here are, here are my notes and my ratings. Okay, just to refresh people who are new to this podcast. Um, basically, um, I review each arcade that I have been to or I've been to. Um, on five criteria, location, selection, ambience, functionality, and value. Um, location, is it easy to get to? You know, is it centrally located? Uh, is it out in the sticks somewhere? Selection, how many games do they have? What, you know, is it a good mix? Um, you know, is it like, you know, uh, old school games, new games? You know, is it a combination of the two? Ambiance. Uh, is there things to attract the eye other than games? Uh, is there, uh, like, music playing, you know, to sort of, you know, give a better atmosphere? Is the place bare bones? You know, things like that. Uh, functionality. Do the games work? If they don't work, how long does it take until they get fixed? And so forth and so on. Um, value, of course. Um, how much do you have to pay to play the games? Um, are there other options within this arcade? Uh, sort do they have things like you know a place to eat inside the arcade things like that um each of these criteria is rated one to ten um with half points coming into play of course uh, all the scores will be added together then averaged out for a final rating score so far i believe the the one game or excuse me the arcade that has the highest rating right now i think is Milford Rec. Yes, it is, with an 8.3. That's the highest rating that I've come up so far. I mean, I'm, I'm still going through the arcades that I grew up with. I'm almost done. I'm going to be moving on to the arcades that I went to in when I moved to Florida. And then uh, going to the arcades that I have since visited since I've been here in Michigan. And then, once I, come up, once I visit new places, I will, of course, rate them uh, in the same way. And that way... You know, you will also have uh, a uh, a source to sort of base, you know, whether or not you want to go to these places on. But once again, this is my opinion. You know, I mean, I am something of somewhat knowledgeable about arcades and arcade video games. I've been playing them since I was literally eight years old. So yeah, let's move, let's get on with this. Okay, Lafayette Plaza Arcade in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Okay, I had to give the location a 7.5 because it was really easy to get to. Uh, Lafayette Plaza was smack dab in the middle of downtown Bridgeport. You could get to it from almost anywhere in town because Bridgeport had a good transit system. It had a really good bus system. It had a train system. You know, there were ways to, there were easy ways to get downtown from anywhere in the city and from the uh, suburbs surrounding Bridgeport. So, yeah, um, you could take... On, you could take one bus, maybe two at the most, you would be downtown. 
uh, I-95, I-95 runs right through downtown Bridgeport. All you'd have to do is get off at exit 27, and the mall is literally right there. You know, right there, dead in front of you on the right. Uh, the arcade was next door to the Sears department store on the south side of the mall. So yeah, I had to give it a 7.5. Easy to get to. Um, selection. I'd also give it a 7.5. Uh, the arcade didn't stay in business for too long, but I do remember the selection being de uh, decent. Um, they had games that I did not see very often, like Vanguard and Taxcan. Um... Van, this is the only other place until I saw it in the arcade in Brighton that had a Vanguard machine. The, the other place was, of course, the James E. Strait shows that came to my town every summer when I was a kid. Um, I think there's, they had like 20 to 25 machines. They, they might have had more, but I think it was right around there. So I gave it a 7.5 for selection. Um, Ambiance. I gave it a 4. Uh, the arcade was in a vacated department storefront and used maybe about a, not even, maybe a quarter of the total square footage of the place. Basically, they packed the machines very close together in a, uh, in a, shall I say, you know, sort of, that's how, that's what the wall was. And basically, if somehow you could get around those things there was a whole bunch of space to explore i mean i remember some kids they would just move the machines so they could squeeze in through them and then they go running around in the empty space behind in you know the storefront you know which is kind of weird um there wasn't any music or art in the place you know to please the ear or draw the eye it was 100 percent business so yeah i gave it only a four uh functionality 7.7 7. excuse me i gave it a seven um Every time I went to the place, the machines were in pretty good working order. Um, I don't remember very many of them being out of order. So, you know, I gave them, gave them a 7. Um, value. Uh, an average, basically a strictly average 5. They ran on quarters. Um, so it was average value. There weren't any specials or anything like that because, of course, they ran on quarters. Um, all, all told, it basically comes down to a score of, an average score of 6.2. Um, the slap together, let's make some money off the video game craze, feel the place, lets it down big time, although they had a really decent, uh, number in selection of games. Um, you add to the fact the place was open, uh, maybe a year or 18 months, it also lets it down. Um, it was easy to get to, and I used to do, um, comic book runs, I would just come downtown, and go to the news corner, and buy some comic books, if I had some money left over, I would go walk over to the Lafayette Plaza Mall, and, and, uh, dump a few quarters in some games, have a little fun. Um, so yeah, I gave it a 6.2, which is slightly above average. Like I said, if it had a little bit more ambiance in the place, it would be rated higher. But aside from that, you know, that and also, you know, it was just, you know, it was just obviously put in there to make a quick buck because video games were so popular in the early 80s. So yeah, that's the Lafayette Plaza Arcade. Um, if you remember that, if you're, you know, anyone out there is listening who grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut at that time, you have memories of it, get a hold of me. I want to know because, you know, <laughs> I would love to find, I would love to talk with you. I'd love to share some memories about the place. So yeah, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Now on to our last segment of the show, which is home systems. 
There's no place like home. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys! I'm going home! Clear a path! I'm going home! Home systems. Being television. Okay. Whew. This, this system, I remember... I'm gonna give my first, my first impressions before I get into the actual meat and bones, which is based, which I'm pulling straight off Wikipedia. And trust me, there's a lot of information here. I'm only going to go, I'm only going to uh, go into a couple of them. Um, the Intellivision system, that was for kids that had money. I mean, if, because, let's see, by the time, you know, the Intellivision came out in 79, um, by the time... By this time, I think the Atari 2600 started coming down in price. So, yeah, you could afford an Atari 2600 pretty easily. But yeah, it's like, yeah, if you had a, uh, a mom or a dad who had a really good job, yeah, you got an Intellivision. <laughs> it, was, it was just sort of like a, just a class description more than anything else. So, yeah. Um, yeah, let's, you know, so let's read from Wikipedia. The Intellivision was developed at Mattel in Hawthorne, California, along with their Mattel Electronics line of handheld electronic games. And trust me, they had a lot of those. <laughs> they had quite a few of those. There are a couple of threads on uh, Facebook that I'm reading that, you know, everybody's all happy they found uh, a Mattel football electronic handheld game. And I'm just like, oh, okay, dude, you just don't know how many of those were made, do you? Anyway, I continue. Uh, Mattel's design and development group began investigating a home video game system in 1977. It was to have rich graphics and long-lasting gameplay to distinguish itself from its competitors. Mattel identified, identified a new but expensive chipset from National Semiconductor and negotiated better pricing for a simpler design. Oh, uh, let's see. Oh, uh, let's see. Their consultant, APH Technological Consulting, suggested general instrument chipset listed as the Gemini programmable set and set in the GI 1977 catalog. The chipset lacked reprogrammable graphics and Mattel worked with GI to implement changes. GI published an updated chipset in its 1978 catalog. After initially choosing National in August of 1977, Mattel waited two months before ultimately going with the proposed GI chipset in the fall of 1977. A team at Mattel, headed by David Chandler, began engineering the hardware, including the famous hand controllers, or infamous, depending on how you feel about them. Uh, in 1978, David Rolfe of APH developed the executive control software and with a group of Caltech summer student hires programmed the first games. Graphics were designed by a group of art artists at Mattel led by Dave James. The Intellivision was test marketed in Fresno, California in 1979 with, four, with a total of four games available. It was released nationwide in 1980 with a price tag of $2.99, a packing game which was Las Vegas Poker and Blackjack, and a library of 10 cartridges. Mattel Electronics would become a subsidiary in 1981. Hmm. I'm wondering. I could be, yeah, I could be wrong, but I think, I think 
it still came out. It might have. It might have come out in the in Christmas nineteen eighty, but I do remember it. I could have sworn it was seventy nine, but okay, I'll call. I'll I'll roll with it. Uh, let's see. Though the Intellivision was not the first system to challenge Warner Communications' Atari, it was the first to pose a serious threat to the market leader. A series of advertisements featuring George Plimpton were produced that demonstrated the superiority of the Intellivision's graphics and sound to those of the entire in the Atari 2600 using side-by-side game comparisons. And yes, I saw those commercials. And I remember I wanted an Intellivision when I saw it. <laughs> but yeah, at the price point that it came out at, which was $299, yeah, <laughs> um, my my mother was like, uh, not only no, but hell no. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. One of the slogans of the television, the TV advertisement stated that the Intellivision was the closest thing to the real thing. One example in an advertisement compared golf games. The other console's game had a blip sound and cruder graphics, while the Intellivision featured a realistic swing sound and striking of the ball and graphics that suggested a more 3D look. There also, there also was an advertisement comparing the Atari 2600 to it, Featuring the slogan, I didn't know. <laughs> In its first year, Mattel sold out its initial 175,000 production run of the Intellivision Master Components. In 1981, over 1 million Intellivision consoles were sold, five times as many as in 1980. Which is true, because that's when it really started blowing up. Let's see. Oh... And there's a lot in talking about the software, things like that. Uh, talking about the keyboard, I'm not going to get into that. Let's see, where do I want to talk about? Let's see. Oh, yes, the IntelliVoice, which was a voice synthesis module. Uh, it was a speech it had a speech synthesizer which produced speech with compatible cartridges. The IntelliVoice was original in two respects: human-sounding male and female voices with distinct accents, and the speech-supporting games were designed with speech being an integral part of the gameplay, which is true. By this time in 1982, I'm going to the uh, the video connection, which I talked about in episode 10, I believe, and um, I was asking to play the speech those speech games all the time b17 bomber in particular because i thought it was awesome it was really good i mean you hear a guy with like a, a southern accent talking about bandits you know talking about uh you know when you reach the target and he's saying target low and you hit the button to drop your bombs and he's going bombs away you know it was awesome you know it was great it was one of those things um, let's see, getting back to it, uh, let's see, like the Intellivision chipset, the IntelliVoice chipset, chipset was developed by General Instrument, uh, the, P, the speech, the speech chip had a 2K ROM inside, and is used to store the speech for numerical digits, some common words, and the phrase Mattel Electronics presents. Speech can also be processed through, from the IntelliVoice's uh, SP650 buffer chip stored and loaded from cartridge memory. That buffer chip has its own I.O. and the IntelliVoice has a 30-pin expansion port underneath a re removable top plate. Mattel Electronics plan to use that connector for wireless hand controllers. <sighs> I wish they <laughs> Oh my goodness. So there are four titles made for the IntelliVoice. There are Space Spartans, B-17 Bomber, Bomb Squad, and Tron Solar Sailor. They had a, a 
a fifth title, which was World Series Major League Baseball, but it was with the uh, the ECS, which was their computer system. You had to and you had to use both of them. Um, you could play it without the IntelliVoice module, but not without the ECS. So you had to have both. Um, in 1983, they came out with the Intellivision 2, which was a much more streamlined, smaller version of the Intellivision. One of the differences in the game, it also had a video import to the cartridge port as specifically for the system charge changer. The system changer, also released in 1983 by Mattel, is an Intellivision peripheral that plays Atari 26 cartridges through the Intellivision. The hand controller can be used to play 2600 games. It all, the System Changer also has two controller ports compared, compatible with Atari joysticks. Uh, the original Intellivision required a hardware modification to work with the System Changer, a service provided by Mattel. Otherwise, the Intellivision 2 was promoted to be compatible with the original. You know, that was that was pretty cool. I, I like that. Let's see. Let's see now... Uh, according to the company's 1982 Form 10K, Mattel had almost 20% of the domestic video game market. Mattel Electronics brought 25% of revenue and 50% of operating income in fiscal 1982. Although the Atari 2600 had more third-party development, Creative Computing Video and Arcade Games reported that after visiting the summer 1982 CES, that's a consumer electronics show, which ironically is going on right now, uh, that the momentum is tremendous. That's what they said. Activision and iMagic began uh, releasing games for the Intellivision, as, as did hardware rival Coleco. Mattel created the M-Network branded games for the Atari 2600 system. The company's advertisement budget increased over $20 million for the year. In October 1982 stockholders report, Mattel announced that Electronics had, so far that year, posted nearly $100 million profit on nearly $500 million of sales, a three-fold increase over October of 1981. However, the same, port predict the same report predicted a loss for the upcoming quarter. Still hiring continued and optimism that, optimism that in the investment in software and hardware development will pay off. The M-Network brand expanded to personal computers. An office in Taiwan was open to handle Apple II programming. The original five-person Mattel game development team had grown to 110 people under the new vice president. And while Daglo led in television development and top engineer Minkoff directed all work on all other platforms. In February of 1983, Mattel Electronics opened an office in the south of France to provide European input to Intellivision games to develop games for the ColecoVision. Wow. At its peak, Mattel Electronics employed 1,800 people. Oh, let's see. Amid the flurry of new hardware and software development, there was trouble for the Intellivision. New game systems, meaning the ColecoVision and Atari 5200, introduced in 1982, took advantage of falling RAM prices to offer graphics closer to arcade quality. In 1983, the price of home computers, particularly Commodore 64, and on that note, there will be home systems for the 64. <laughs> I will tell you that, uh, came down drastically to compete with video game sales. The market became flooded with hardware and software, and retailers were ill-equipped to cope. In spring 1983, hiring at Mattel Electronics came to a halt. In, at the June 1983 Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago, Mattel Electronics had the opportunity to show off all the new products. The response was underwhelming. Amidst massive losses, top management was replaced. 
On July 12, 1983, Mattel Electronics president Josh Denham was replaced with outsider Mac Morris. Morris brought in former Mattel Electronics president and marketing director Jeff Roklis as a consultant, and all other, pro all other projects were under review. The Intellivision 3 was canceled, then all new hardware development was stopped when 660 jobs were cut on August 4th. The price of the Intellivision 2, which lost, launched at $150 earlier that year, was lowered to $69. Mattel Electronics was to be a software company. However, by no October 1983, Mattel Electronics losses were over $280 million for the year, and one-third of the program staff were, programming staff were laid off. In November, another third were gone, and on January 20th, 1984, the remaining programming staff were laid off. The Taiwan and French offices continue, continue a little while longer due to contract and legal obligations. On February 4, 1984, Mattel sold the Intellivision business for $20 million. In 1983, 750 Intellivision master components were sold, more than 3 million units from 1980 to 1983. So yeah, that's what happened, <laughs> that's, that's what happened to Mattel during the crash. It's basically too much glut. Too many things were out there, and and like I said, vendors had you know got couldn't deal with it, and so yeah, and that that then there's a lot more to the Intellivision's history. I mean, it goes all the way up to 2018, believe it or not. Um, where it stops for me is that I have the Intellivision Lives uh, game for the for my PlayStation Two. Um, I do play it every once in a while. Um, and I was thinking about getting, um, the Intellivision flashback that they were going, that they put out. Um, you know, I really wanted to, I really wanted that game only because it had my favorite game of it. Um, game of the Intellivision of all time, Treasure of Tarman, which they renamed to Minotaur. <laughs> uh, it had the, uh, the, um, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons licensing. Uh, for 1983 when it came out, but once, you know, they basically put out a um, um, a prototype game and called it Minotaur. I mean, it's the exact same game pretty much, but yeah, without the uh, TSR licensing. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, there were there's a lot of history here, and I only covered a little bit of it. <laughs> you know, the Intellivision was a great was a great gaming system. You know, from a personal standpoint, here it is. Um, the Intellivision was one of the best. Um, the controllers is the only thing that lets it down. That's the only thing that lets that system down. I mean, the games were great. Oh, and the other thing, that a lot of their, their original sports games, like basketball, football, baseball, I think hockey as well, they were all two-player games. That's, un that's just too... Uh, that's just too bad. If I wish they... A lot of their games that came out um i wish they were single player like sea battle sea battle is one of their best games of all time and you know out of that group i think that was in the second wave of games that mattel put out for the intellivision i think that was like the second wave and sea battle was one of the best i love playing that game but unfortunately you needed someone else to play with you and i think that's where they also kind of slipped up with a lot of their games that they didn't have a single player uh, option, you know, but I mean, yeah, it was a great system. Um, I never owned one. I played it 
I, I remember going to the mall and playing it at Herman's uh, Sporting Goods Store on the lower level in the mall until they would come and kick me out. Um, I played it at the Video Connection for a long time. And then when uh, I was going over my friend John's place a lot, John, who lives ironically, like, literally, like, a quarter mile from where my best friend lives in Milford, Connecticut, um, we used to, I used to go over to his house all the time, and, you know, we both had Commodore 64s, and we would share, uh, programs. Um, one time he told me he had an Intellivision, and he was never playing it, and I asked to borrow it, and he had Treasure of Tarman, which asked, had me ask him to borrow it. I had that Intellivision, too, for... I want to say six months. <laughs> yeah, I had that thing for six months. And um, it was just, I love playing that game. I still love playing it to this day. It's an awesome game. Um, it's called Minotaur. If you have it on the Intellivision Lives uh, compilation, or if you actually have uh, an Intellivision, uh, it's uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Treasure of Tarnit. It's a fantastic RPG, one of the best, um, and I basically, I ba that's the only game I borrowed from him, <laughs> and I would sit there, and I would play Treasure of Tarman for hours, and hours, and hours, until basically I had to stop, because my hands were hurting, <laughs> because, yeah, that's the only problem about the Intellivision, is the controllers, once again, but, yeah, so, um, I mean, it may not have sold as much as the 2600, but it has its place in home video gaming lore. Video gaming lore in general. It has its place in history. And if you can find one out there, which uh, you could probably find one on eBay somewhere, as long as the guy's not, you know, being greedy, you can probably find one with like 10 games for a decent price. And... And for those who actually have Intellivisions, you know, play on, man. That's all I've got to say. And that is the Intellivision, one of the one of the best home systems of all time. You know, it's sold. It basically, it's got it, it's got its place on the mountaintop. You know, it may not be at the pinnacle, which is the PlayStation Two. <laughs> the you know that's right at the summit of the that's at the peak of the mountain and no one's gonna knock it off anytime soon and yes I will get to the PlayStation Two in due time but yeah the Intellivision has its spot and you know it's one of the one of the better gaming systems that ever came out in my opinion so yeah that's the Intellivision uh, you have any thoughts you know comments anything like that you know how to get a hold of me arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com so yeah, that is episode 12 in a nutshell. Um, I'm going to see about uh, episode 13 soon. I will be getting this out probably in the next few days, maybe in about maybe as long as a week. Definitely by this time uh, next week. What is it? Uh, it's what one a almost 1 a.m. on June 9th. I will definitely have it out by the 16th. So until next time, this is Brian saying. Good gaming, have fun out there, au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music is provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. If you wish to contact the show, you can drop an email 
at arcadeaddictryan, that's all one word, at gmail.com. We also have a voicemail number for the show. It is 734-743-2433. Until next time, this is the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. <laughs>